We now return to bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Enjoy. Stress is a normal outcome and the body can handle stress as it must throughout the human life. However, when stress becomes chronic stress, it creates problems for the human body and it's more appropriately called distress. There's a term called allostasis. It's the ability of the human body or any organism to achieve stability through change in the view that healthy functioning requires continued adjustments of the internal physiological milieu, if you will. So when I'm under constant stress, the body is going to secrete certain types of hormones and various things that we'll talk about in just a second. But when environmental challenges exceed what I'm able to cope with, then this allostatic overload occurs. So the allostatic load is identified by the use of a number of biomarkers and clinical criteria. And what we can see is when the body is compromised for too long, the body actually creates and responds in a way that can be damaging to the overall health of the body. But the findings indicate that allostatic overload are associated with considerably poorer health outcomes. So when we talk about weathering, situations that may lead to the development of allostatic overload, if you will, include exposure to frequent environmental stressors that may determine and create a status of chronic stress. In response to these environmental demands, different physiological systems interact at varying levels and degrees of activity. And our health is compromised by repeated exposure to stress of a chronic nature, and that includes some of the following five stressors. For instance, socioeconomic adversity, not knowing where my next meal is coming from or concern about my financial welfare of a chronic nature over a chronic period of time can create this overstressed response. Marginalization, which is really just the treatment of a group of people or a person in such a fashion that they're relegated to a lesser status. You sometimes see this in groups due to race, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, physical ability, or even immigration status. But marginalization occurs due to unequal power relationships between social groups. Another stress-inducing experience is racism. We talked briefly about how experiencing discrimination on a regular basis for African Americans is not uncommon in interactions that they may go through from day to day or week to week. And then with racism, of course, part of that is this perpetual discrimination. And then finally, poverty, which is a form of socioeconomic adversity, but in and of itself can create great stress. So the whole theory here that Dr. Geronimus initiated and now that there's a lot more science behind has to do with the wear and tear of the body's adaptive mechanisms it accumulates over a long period of time and in response to stress the human body releases substances to react to that stress but in excessive amounts can harm our health cortisol is certainly one of those chemicals that is released Uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, these are both neurochemicals associated with the fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, autonomic nervous system response. So repeated releases of these substances in high amounts over time may lead to secondary physiological effects, including high blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic, high cholesterol levels, high glycated hemoglobin levels. That's 
those high sugar levels, that pre-diabetic marker, and increased weight, increased waist-to-hip ratio. And importantly, in the more recent research that's been attached and followed Geronimus's work in racial differences in weathering and its associations with psychosocial stress, the Cardia study, Population Health Journal, Volume 7, April 2019, they also discovered that racial differences were not explained by poverty alone. Poor and non-poor black women each had the highest and second highest probability of high allostatic load scores, respectively. That was compared with their male or white counterparts. So whether you were poor or non-poor, being a black woman constituted the greatest risk factor for the negative health impacts of weathering. This 2019 study indicated that black adults had a biological age that was 2.6 years older than their chronological age based on these algorithms, while average biological age among white adults was 3.5 years younger than their chronological age. So at the end of the day, black adults were weathering to the tune of 6.1 years faster than white adults. And so without dealing with the more structurally rooted factors that lead to weathering, said Geronimus, across class, we're not ever going to end weathering. And just to end our discussion on that note, race is a socially constructed category, not a biological one. This is science now. It's been shown, Laveist, L-A-V-E-I-S-T, 1994. But the weathering affects of living in a race-conscious society that is marked by racism may be greatest among those black adults most likely to engage in high-effort coping. And high-effort coping is often a phenomenon needed when the experience of living in racism and discrimination that black adults, people face from day to day, it's that that which requires the high-effort coping. So this, for me, appears to be the most pernicious form or outcome of living in a racist culture, whether it's implicit or explicit. There are some black adults that feel these effects in the form of weathering and, as a result, lose years off their lives. So are the casualties of the crime of systemic racism and racial injustice, which should compel all of us to do what we can to understand it so we could dismantle it. We end the show with an update from the Ukraine-Russia conflict with Mike Whitney. Welcome back. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. It is Saturday, April the 23rd. We are with investigative journalist and geopolitical historian Mike Whitney. Mike, thanks for rejoining us. I appreciated the update last week and wanted to continue that conversation today. Some of the things that we really haven't had time to get to on bringing light into darkness that I thought might be a good thing to bring our listeners up to speed on, whereas this whole conversation about these biolabs, traditionally the United States has been the, the holier-than-thou country that we need to protect the world and protect ourselves from chemical weapons and that type of thing. There's a well-known history now that we actually helped Saddam Hussein with his chemicals that he used in the Iran-Iraq war. But specific to what we wanted to have you speak to today, though, was the fairly recent revelation just a month or so ago and the acknowledgement by Victoria Nuland that the United States was in intimately involved with the Pentagon, that is, with working with Ukraine in a number of biolab sites. Can you give us a background and welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness? 
Yeah, thank you for having me, Pedro. Yeah, it's all pretty uh, concerning because Russia didn't know what to expect when they came into Ukraine and they found over 20 of these bio laboratories and found all kinds of uh, very dangerous pandemic generating uh, pathogens. And so they had to extract a lot of the material and take it back to Russia for their own uh, analysis. And what they found is that not only uh, are there 20 of these bioweapons labs, well, I won't call them bioweapons labs because that's not definitive yet, although it looks from the research that that's in fact what they were. The United States has spent over $5 billion on uh, these projects since 2005, and they have these labs, which are all part of an interconnected network uh, in 36 countries around the world. There are 60 of these bio labs around encircling both China and Russia alone. And some of the material they found along with COVID anthrax and some of the other pathogens were what they believe are things that are directed at particular ethnic groups like Slavic people, that these things are being specially manufactured to target a particular race. So, I mean, it just seems as though this must be a weapon system in some in some respects. But uh, like I said, they can't prove the determination. What they can prove, though, is if not the intention, they can show that these diseases and epidemics, that they were focusing on the means for their release rather than the simple examination or the gain of function that they were working on. They were looking at migratory birds. Now, you know, how sinister does it get? They were looking at getting these migratory birds that follow a certain uh, you know, pattern every year, returning to the same location to carry these pathogens and then infect the population in that way. So this is uh, a really sinister program. Unsurprisingly, the United States did not show up on April 6th on the Security Council's special meeting to uh, go over this material, which the Russians made a presentation that lasted over an hour and a half and breaking down what they had found and drawing no immediate conclusions, but just saying that under the Bioweapons Treaty, of which the United States is a signator, that these things need to be examined. But uh, like I said, unsurprisingly, the UK and the United States boycotted the meeting and the entire Western media basically omitted it from any coverage. So if you go to Google News right now and you look for this, Bioweapons UN Security Council, you'll find a few articles in the, in the Chinese newspapers and stuff like that and independent reporting. You won't find anything in the mainstream media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, any of that. So all of this makes it look even more damning for the United States, because not only are the pro secret programs under no supervision internationally, but there's no domestic supervision at all. So obviously, this sort of experimentation was going on as covertly as possible. Well, let me ask you this, because this is really interesting and very alarming at the same time. The, the West has been, again, as we said, the great holier-than-thou type of thing that, that there's all these other nations that are using these chemical weapons or have these chemical weapons. And, you know, you refer to this bioweapons treaty and such, you know, with, with like nuclear proliferation and if you're signed up at, with a non-proliferation treaty, you know, you have to report any types of nuclear, say, weaponry, types of capacities and such. 
One of the things that was always striking to me is that the United States claims, we often in the West claims to have these high moral standards, but if we don't want to follow the moral standards, we could set up like Guantanamo, right? Where we're outside of this, the, the formal boundaries of the United States, and therefore technically it's not in the United States, and it's a layer of deniability or, or impunity. It sounds like this is similar in the sense that you have all of these unannounced labs. And in fact, they probably would never have been discovered, right? Unless as a result of the Russian invasion, it it forced the United States to reveal what was going on to make it look like they had nothing to hide when it happened. No, you're exactly right. And and the fact that the anticipated invasion by Russia was only going to be the Donbass area, they probably would have, you know, spirited most of the material out of the country. It was the fact that the invasion turned out to be a larger geographical area than they had expected that they were able to uncover these. So Mm -hmm. it was quite the surprise to Russia as well as everyone else. Now it just shows that these international conventions and even the to what extent the United Nations is just subservient to the United States, that even when these things are exposed in clear violation of the uh, chemical weapons treaties that they're all signatories to, that there's no enforcement mechanism. Mm-hmm. And not only is there no en- enforcement mechanism, but there's no way to publicize what's going on. So there's no way to garner public support for an issue that is very serious implications for everyone in the world. You know, these are Mm -hmm. humanity threatening biological agents. And once they're released, no one has any idea of how far or how many people could be affected. So it just shows when you control the institution of the United Nations and you also control the media at the same time, the information for me even getting out there, then you basically have a stranglehold on the whole system. And you just have basically you're paving the way for people who have very malign intentions to get away with as much as they can as far as criminal activity. Right. So what's needed is total transparency here. And for those people that are not familiar, uh, I am familiar with the long history in Cuba of the United States engaging in biological warfare way back into the 60s, 70s and 80s introducing various types of biological types of sugarcane smut, pig swine, all sorts of deals that this guy, Eduardo Aracena, actually testified in open court that he was party to on behalf of the CIA. And this is not a big stretch that you're talking about, about this potential nefarious use of biological chemical. Now, you mentioned that there was some $5 billion that was invested into this program. Yeah, but from from the number of, if this is in 36 countries and there's 60 laboratories in just surrounding the China-Russia area alone, and this is a network, I would think that it vastly exceeds $5 billion. But, you know, I can't quantify that. But it just that actually sounds like a small amount for a project that is this big. And, you know, there are incidents where the local population, apparently, I don't have those at my fingertips right now, but I know some of this material was released among the people in the Donbass, and they reported these sporadic deaths that happened for no apparent reason, and people came down with these bizarre type flus and then died. I'll bet that you could find incidents of that 
any number of plays. But, you know, there's also emerging between the Pentagon's interests and the interests of private entrepreneurs and wealthy billionaire people who might have other agendas in mind, depopulation or whatever. But I think this does segue into the whole vaccine mandate. We're going to vaccine the whole world or vaccinate the entire world because the whole fact that the issue of the fact that uh, these laboratories also had pathogens, COVID samples, leads one to believe that there's some kind of you know, cross-pollination between the various interests. So I, I don't know what to make of that. We only know what we know. And uh, that's very limited at this point, but it, it seems obvious that it needs to be investigated by an international group of inspectors so that someone can arrive at some conclusion so that these things aren't just left to the Pentagon to decide how to use. Right. Well, let me move on because I know we just have you for a few more minutes. We'll come back to this on future shows. The other issue that has come out fairly recently, it really didn't come out. It was already out, but the documentation was extraordinary in a piece by Max Blumenthal and the co-author in The Gray Zone back on the 17th of April. So that was just less than a week ago, documenting all sorts of horrific forms of disappearance and assassination and torture of Russian captives and, and other folks. Such as Ukrainian journalists and Ukrainian politicians that were not sufficiently anti-Russian in their commentary. And so I guess it's one thing to be really concerned about the Azov battalion and the far right elements throughout the, the Ukraine military, apparently, that we know about in the Ukraine. We've documented that the head of the national security cabinet position following the coup was handed over to a, a neo-Nazi, the, the right sector and uh, the Svoboda party members that populated the cabinet as well. But can you, you know, two things. Number one is there's this propaganda war that's going on that indicates that Russia is the great human rights violators. When in, in fact, when you look at the number of civilians that have been killed relative to other interventions, it's, you know, we mentioned this last week, it pales in comparison. Nobody is happy about civilians dying and, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. But the real atrocities have occurred. We know that these videos of Russians in Ukraine custody being videotaped that were, they were shot in the legs and types of things that, again, never made it to the United States media at all. And it's like this projection, whatever it seems like the worst deeds that they do, they then turn around and project through propaganda that Putin is this horrific ahead of a, of a program that, that is terrifying and stomping all over human rights of Ukrainians. Can you give us any in, insight from your perspective as to th this, this issue? Well, yeah. I mean, the only reason that people are critical of the Russian invasion to begin with is that uh, they've been complaining that look at how slow and incompetent the Russian uh, officer class is and how the, the army really hasn't improved much and it's low morale. When you know, and I know, if you read as much research as out there on the topic, you'll see that the reason that the thing, that the operation is moving slowly is because they are showing as much regard for the safety and security of the civilian population and trying to blow up as little of the infrastructure as possible. So, you know, they're just targeting military targets 
that does include gas depots and uh, some of the railroads have been taken out, but those are just resupply lines. But no, I mean, I'm sure there's some excesses on the part of the Russians, but the Azov Brigade and the neo-Nazis on the other side, they are both filling their uh, Telegram and uh, Twitter feeds with all kinds of uh, horrible examples of torture. And like you said, I mean, watching them shoot off the kneecaps of captured Russian soldiers is excruciating. It's very difficult to watch, but it, it but it gives you a clear idea of how just evil these people are. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I, I think if there's ever an investigation when this is all over, we're going to see the most of the violations of human rights is on the side of the Ukrainians because they have this renegade brigade that are basically no moral or ethical uh, values whatsoever. And they just don't believe in the laws of war. So it's quite different, I think, on the Russian side. And meanwhile, Mike, just in the last minute or so here, it sounds like they're still motivating forces to launch the the final Donbass assault on that, what, that 200 and 50-kilometer area that's... Yeah, that's been- I mean, they're they're locked in a cauldron. There are roughly fifty to 60,000 of the best Ukrainian troops, uh, which is fully one-third of their entire army, are stuck in the eastern part of the Donbass, and they're surrounded by the Russian army and being pounded as we speak with their heavy artillery. Mm-hmm. This could unfold over the course of a couple of weeks or a month, or it could happen very quickly. We just don't know, but this is the defining battle. And I think people who are critical of the Russian operation to begin with, because they thought that, that Putin wanted to take over all of Ukraine, can see that that was never the intention to begin with. They, the reason they deployed their troops to around Kiev and, and to Odessa was to keep the Ukrainian troops from resupplying the troops in the east. From the very beginning, the goal of the operation was to liberate the Donbass so the Russian, the ethnic Russians, the Russian-speaking people in that area would no longer be have to face artillery shells and just the constant bombardment and siege that they have had to for the last eight years. Yeah. It might not be ruining right according to schedule, but it, it is they will certainly achieve their goals. Yeah. It also seems like that perhaps in Maripol, where the where, where there's a, you know what, what one to two thousand that are totally encircled and and being starved out or whatever, that the reason they're probably not giving them the permission to surrender is it probably defers a number of troops that Russia has there from coming down to that greater conflict that's going to be occurring, as you say, in the Donbass. There, but listen, Mike, thank you very much for your update. Mike writes for the UNS Review and his current updates regarding the Russian-U.S. conflict is becoming a regular feature, bringing light into darkness in order that we can be diverse in, in bringing light into darkness, subjects that we cover, but not not into the side of important issues that are going on in the world, which clearly includes the Ukraine and Russian war conflict. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Pedro. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Kickbacks are his
Socio 